I'm not pulling out of the driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another Drive to Work Coronavirus Edition. Okay, so I've been doing some fun interviews, and I have yet another fun guest. So, uh, Ethan Fleischer, say hello. Hello. So, Ethan, actually, by the way, is my first guest uh, in this uh, sort of interview that was actually in my car at one point, back when I did interviews with people sitting next to me. That's right. I, uh, me and Matt Cavalda and uh, a few other people got to ride in your car with you. Yes, the, the uh, old school, old school uh, interviews <laughs> when they would actually carpool. Um, so uh, we, if you want, Ethan and I talked all about the Great Designer Search, which is how Ethan got into this. And so um, we're not going to talk a lot about the Great Designer Search today, just because we did a whole podcast on that. Um, but if you want to hear about Ethan and the Great Designer Search. Uh, and, and there's 30 plus minutes of that, of him writing with me. So anyway, so Ethan, we're going to start with a question I've been asking everybody, which is how did you get into magic? Oh, uh, my friend in high school went to Gen Con and brought back a bunch of alpha magic cards. And he was very excited about it. He's like, we, we've got to try this. And our whole gaming group uh, tried out playing with the magic cards and we loved it. And then we were like, we got to buy this. And we couldn't because there weren't any. And we had to wait until uh, I think Arabian Nights came out and Unlimited came out before we could actually buy the cards. But uh, we were hooked right from the beginning as soon as the game came out. Okay, so did you play continuously from first learning about Magic up till you you enter the Great Designer Search? Or was that was there... Off times in between. No, I, I took breaks here and there. You know, whenever I moved, I would, you know, lose my old gaming group and it would take time to hook people on magic again. But uh, yeah, by the uh, by the time I entered the great designer search, I was working in a bookstore and I had uh, introduced magic to a bunch of the people there and we had a league going at the store. And actually, we started selling magic cards at the bookstore also. So uh, I, I did my part to spread the love. Okay, so you, uh, I don't know if it's on a whim, but you, you uh, decided to, to uh, try out for the Great Designer Search. Obviously, a whim. What? Was it a whim? <laughs> it was a whim. <laughs> um, so obviously you won the, the second Great Designer Search, and uh, we brought you on to Wizards. So once again, I, we have a whole podcast about the Great Designer Search. Go listen to it. Um, but we're going to jump ahead to your days at Wizards. Um, so in fact, I want to jump ahead... Um, well, first, first off, what's it like? You you uh, been an outsider, and all of a sudden you're working at Wizards. What was that like? It was a little bit crazy and a little bit uh, almost alienating, I guess, because a lot of the people who uh, worked in the department had been like pro tour people, or like we were all on the same team together in Pittsburgh or whatever. And I felt very much like an outsider for some time uh, until you know I had gotten some reps under my belt and felt like uh i knew what i was doing uh also i'd never done a professional game design before uh before working at wizards though i, I did a bunch of uh amateur game design for my own amusement well same for me so this was my first uh, actual uh <laughs> yeah. game design job okay so uh let's talk about some of your reps getting your reps so the very first set that you led um the design for this is back in the old school design development days was Journey into Nyx. So let's talk a little bit about that. Right, so that's back when we did a large set followed by two small sets all together in a block. Uh, and 
this was a challenging way to do sets, I think. And I think as, as we've continued to change our process, it's uh, become more and more clear that, that maybe that just wasn't the best way to do things for the first 20 years of magic. Uh, <laughs> okay, so... so yes. Yeah, so it was like we had Theros, which was this uh, this set that was about enchantments and Greek mythology. And we had the uh, the sequel to that set, Born of the Gods, which was about all these enchantment creatures coming to life. And then uh, for Journey into Nyx, I wanted to have a war between the mortals and the gods. Uh, I don't think that really uh, came through as loudly as I would have wanted it to, but... Uh, uh, as far as the mechanics of the set, I wanted to introduce a set for the more a mechanic for the mortals and a mechanic for the gods. So we had constellation, which turned out to be quite successful. People really liked it, and uh, that was a thing that triggers whenever uh, an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control. Uh, there was a constellation deck in standard. Everyone re- recalls it fondly. And then the other mechanic was strive, which nobody remembers because it's not that exciting of a mechanic. So what, what did Strive uh, do? <laughs> you you were able to pay extra mana to add more targets to a spell. Um, so it was like uh, you could just cast the spell normally and then um, you could pay it as sort of kicker cost, a multi-kicker cost kind of to add targets. And this was to interact with the heroic mechanics. You could t- target a bunch of your heroic car- uh, cards and trigger them all at once. But uh, it wasn't particularly uh, noteworthy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, it's one of those mechanics that play just fine. It just isn't very memorable, I think. Yeah. And I don't think I designed that mechanic. I think that was uh, Eric Lauer designed that during the development team. So uh, I had some other mortal mechanic that was just totally out of control. I think it doubled the counters on everything every turn. And you really liked it, but uh, I did. <laughs> for some reason, the developers weren't so hot on it. <laughs> Sounds like my 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 kind of mechanic. Um, yeah. Okay, so so what was the last? So, so you were on. I, I remember this. Uh, you were on all three design teams, so you actually were through the whole block. Um, right. We were trying to set you up for your first your first lead. Yeah, so I was on all three design teams, and I felt like I had a lot of input even that early on in my career there into you know, some of the, the themes and what was going on. So um, that was really exciting. I felt very invested in Theros as a, as a world, as a setting. Um, I'm always very interested in the creative and world-building end of, uh, of things, though I focus on game design. Um, the idea that we're sort of collaboratively creating worlds, both within the company and with the players, like the players participate in the stories that happen in this world. Uh, and so uh, feeling like I had contributed toward creating this whole new world in this fantasy IP was very exciting for me. Yeah, one of the things, uh, for a little behind the scenes for, for the audience, um, you are kind of known for all the designers for being the most, um, having the greatest knowledge of story and of worlds. Um, and so... It, one of one of your passions, obviously, is um, you're you're very invested, and, and like when you do a set, you 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 make sure you know all the backstory of all the things, whatever the world is, and um, and then you you spend a lot of time on that. I know something that you you have a lot of passion for. Yeah, for uh, for Theros, I had a decent background in Greek mythology, but 
you know, I read Homer's uh, Odyssey and Iliad in preparation just to like get into the get into the mode. And of course, uh, so almost infamously for Dominaria, I went completely nuts and read like every single book that uh, was set in Dominaria uh, during the the whole Dominaria uh, world building and design process, which is like 90 something books. Yeah, it's a lot of books. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's move on to your next one. So the next set you led was Oath of the Gatewatch. So uh, we went back to Zendikar, had a little war. So talk about that set. Right. So um, the idea there was that we were going to have a giant war between the Eldrath, or these huge space monsters, and the people of Zendikar. And it was going to be kind of a Pacific Rim kind of thing. Unfortunately, I think we kind of tacked a little bit too toward the weird and it ended up being a little less like Pacific Rim and a little more like a David Cronenberg film or something. Uh, but uh, we wanted to have the first set battle for Zendikar be focused on uh, Emmerich, uh, no, uh, Ulamog, who was this destructive Titan. And then uh, Oath of the Gatewatch was going to be focused on Kozilek, who was like the weird transmuter one. And uh, then we were going to have the third Eldrazi Titan, Emrakul, show up in Eldritch Moon, which was a couple of sets later, uh, and on the Innistrad plane. Um, the thing that I was really excited about to do for Oath of the Gatewatch was to introduce this colorless mana mechanic, where it was uh, had a colorless mana cost, uh, as opposed to a generic mana cost. So you had to use colorless mana to cast the spells or activate the abilities with the little uh, diamond shape mana cost. Uh, this was an idea that I um, saw John Lauk's pitch during the designer search, and I was like, this is an intriguing idea, and we just need the right place for it. And it really felt like that was a cool twist to do uh, for Battle for Zendikar block. I kind of wish we'd ended up doing it throughout the whole block, but uh, yeah. So the, that mechanic was interesting to me because it was backward compatible with ma you know cards from the first Magic set even. Like Soul Ring can be used to pay for your colorless mana costs. Uh, so we were able to make some pretty efficient cards, and uh, there were powerful uh, cards that made colorless mana. So they actually... Uh, had made a big splash in every format that they were legal in and even were too strong in modern. We ended up having to ban a card because, uh, the, the colorless mana cards were too strong, uh, in the context of, uh, uh, what is it? Um, eye of Ugin and Eldrazi temple or something. Um, so it was a little, it was a little too strong there, but, uh, it was very exciting. And it, uh, broke magic online if i recall correctly it took them months to program it so since then we've changed our process so that uh we try not to break magic online with new mechanics yeah it's, it's funny it's, it's one of the things i get asked about all the time um i think people a lot of players don't realize that we can't just like throw one in in a like there's a lot of support you need to make it work in a set mm -hmm. um i got a lot of people like, yeah <laughs> making that work in limited was really tricky uh we had a whole bunch of different lands that could produce colorless mana, and we even introduced um, basic lands that tap for colorless mana called Wastes, 
which I think that might be my favorite card in the set is Wastes, just because it's uh, <laughs> it's so weird. It's like, how many people get to put a new basic land in the set? You've never done that, have you? We I've never done that. That, that, that. that doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so well, the one other thing real quickly that, that um, might be interesting for people to know about behind the scenes is uh, midway through your design, um, we got a request from, I think, Brand... Uh, saying that oh, yeah. they they really wanted to play up the story like the that we were all in on like it's coastal like whatever and then they're like oh by the way it's gonna be called Oath of the Gatewatch and you had to sort right. of and like mid early right enough yeah yeah it was it came early enough that it was possible to like add design elements to the set. Uh, to support the idea of this pl- team of planeswalkers coming together. And so we uh, we added the, um, gosh, what was it? The Oaths. Well, there was there was the um, the two-headed giant-facing mechanic, right? Um, yeah, the teammate mechanic. What was that called? Um, what was that called? Well, we'll come to us. Um, well, anyway. Well, we had the teammate mechanic. mechanic where you... Yeah. If 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 you or your teammate had cast a spell this turn, you could cast it for its uh, for its alternate cost. Right. And uh, and there was actually also another one that um, the uh, support mechanic, which we've actually used a couple of times since. Mm-hmm. The support mechanic put uh, plus one plus one counters on things, and actually in my original design, it could also put loyalty counters on planeswalkers. Yeah. But. Uh, that changed last set, minute, by the way. That changed last minute. That did. It, uh, yeah, that changed after the slideshow um, because, like, we looked at the slideshow and it was just like, this set is too complicated and it's too weird. And this one thing seems like we could change it without unbalancing everything. Let's change it. So, uh, so we ended up changing support so it only worked on creatures. Which, like, at the time, I was kind of disappointed. Like, oh, I was about Planeswalkers teaming up. That's too bad. But then later, we used support in, like, I think at least two other sets. Uh, so it was like, this is a this is a solid mechanic that uh, is is fun to play with. So uh, I can't feel too bad about that. Okay, so let, let's... Okay, that, that that's... So let's move on to your next set that you led. Actually, this one you co-led. With with a dashing young co-lead, uh, I'm in cat. <laughs> right, so we teamed up on this one. Uh, this was when you were uh, like training me and Sean Maine up to uh, to lead large sets, yeah. and so um, and I remember the plan originally was to have. Um, Amonkhet and Kaladesh switched in the schedule from where they were, and I was very excited to lead this like sci-fi steampunk uh, <laughs> set. And Sean was like had grown up in Egypt and was like ready to lead Amonkhet, and yeah. then we like moved them in the schedule. I was like, oh, actually, <laughs> yeah, so we, we're gonna do it this way. We had to swap uh, them. We swapped them was, late too. I mean, like it was during exploratory or something. We swapped them, I think. Yeah, um, I remember Amonkhet had a little bit of exploratory design under Sean. Right. And then later I picked up and restarted the exploratory design. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah we, so we, that one was based yeah. on ancient Egypt, uh, like mostly on the historical ancient Egypt rather than ancient Egyptian mythology, though there was a little bit of, of mythological stuff in there. Uh, in general... Well, and the, the reason for that, the reason for that real quickly for the audience is... Um, the audience, what we found was the average person just didn't know a lot about Egyptian mythology. 
So it was hard for us to go too deep because no one recognized it. So Right. The, the thing with Greek mythology is that it um, has remained in continuous currency ever since it was written. People have been telling it and retelling it over the years for millennia now, whereas Egyptian um, mythology was just lost for a long time. It just disappeared. Nobody knew how to read Egyptian writing anymore. And so almost all of those stories uh, were just lost to the uh, collective consciousness of humanity. Uh, and then we, they only you know, discovered how to, uh, how to read Egyptian writing again like 100 years ago. And, and by that point, the amount of impact that those stories could have on the culture was pretty minimal. So okay, so what was Amiket design like? What was your... Uh... Um, Amiket design was a breeze, as I recall. It was really fun. We came up with some sweet mechanics that made like mummies come back to life. And we had uh, these monuments that we built up. I, a lot of the people on the team had played a lot of Civilization over the years, which is this very popular video game series where you kind of usher a civilization from the Stone Age all the way up to modern times. And one of the things that you always do in Civilization is you build these monuments, and it takes time to build them, and you have to like invest a lot into into building a monument. But once you have it, it's like, oh, I've got this awesome monument. So we made some sweet monument building cards, uh, and then, but ultimately, like Egypt wasn't enough to kind of fill out a set or two sets, as it were. Um, these we were down to two set blocks by this point, and. Uh, we incorporated sort of Nicol Bolas, uh, who's the, the villain of the storyline at that point, uh, Nicol Bolas's personality into the set. Uh, so the place became this sort of evil, corrupt, um, um, dystopian world. And we incorporated a sort of Stepford Wives creepiness into the... Um, the design in the world building and like uh, creative text to make it look like every, this is a perfect society on the outside, but like clearly there's some horrible lie underneath and uh, you know, these people are deeply messed up. Yeah. The, the dissonance was pretty cool. I, that's one of my favorite things about the set of how like on the surface, it looks like everything was okay, but the mechanics really said, no, it wasn't. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I do like uh, how it hung together in that regard. I don't feel like the... Um, I feel like focusing so much on the kind of emotional down point of the story at that point may have uh, alienated some of the audience that wasn't like along for the ride for the whole story. Mm -hmm. it's, like, it's like the... The low point of the story is during Amenket block. Yeah. And from a storytelling standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. But from a like, is every set as cool and uh, exciting as it as it could be? Maybe that is uh, maybe that wasn't the right decision to make in retrospect. Like everything should be cool and awesome and aspirational. And this one was kind of like. A little bit miserable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a little dark. It was, it was definitely a little bit darker. I mean, uh, I think sets can have different tones to them. 
And hey, it was not nearly as dark as Hour of Devastation. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, Hour <laughs> um, of Devastation was was very bleak. Yeah, that was pretty bleak. Um, okay, let's move on to Modern Horizons, another set you and I definitely worked on together. Um, so we'll talk about what happened. How, how did Modern Horizons come to be? So, uh, just for context, my favorite magic set when I, at least when I came into Wizards, was Time Spiral. Like this was a a set that was all about um, referring to the game of magic's history in a really fun way. Um, it also kind of marked a serious downturn in magic sales because it was like, this is the only way to experience magic. The gathering right now is to play with this set. And the set was, was very much aimed at a very specific audience. But, uh, during my time at wizards, we started making more and more ancillary products that were aimed at specific audiences. And I thought, Oh, this would be a really good idea to make an ancillary product that's like Time Spiral. Um, so, uh, and I know you were thinking along similar lines. Uh, your idea was a, a little bit different. I don't remember exactly. But, I think uh, I pitched mine as another um, future site, but I mean, it, it, you and I have the same basic idea of let's do something that's for a more enfranchised crowd that's deeper and more complex um, that really plays in the nostalgia of magic. Right. Um, so when we, we put together a little mini team for the, for, uh, we do like a, a game jam uh, that we call the hackathon every, uh, couple of years. So it was, uh, I think it was you and me and Allison Medwin and Nat Mose. Yeah. That uh, was, that was and the we just team. like built a large set in like four days. Yes, we did. So that it could be drafted. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we built a draftable large set in four days and then demoed it on the fifth day because it was a five-day hackathon yep. uh, with an actual draft. Yep. And uh, <laughs> which, that was pretty crazy, uh, but it really you know uh, set us up for, for success because it was super fun. It was high complexity, and there were all of – it had just every, – every keyword mechanic – that was legal and modern. I think we decided to put in it uh, up to a certain uh, point. We cut off at a. You can only go up to a certain point. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. There were some some later mechanics that we didn't use. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, it, everybody was really excited about it, and we decided to make it very quickly. There was like very little time between the hackathon presentation and like launching the the vision design team. So. Uh, so I co-led the vision team with Mark Globus. I kind of handled the the standard design problems, and he was sort of the point person for some of the special challenges associated with the set because uh, we decided to make it legal and modern, which normally sets have to be legal and standard before they can uh, enter modern. And we, we thought that modern was big enough at this point that um, – it would be a good idea to to do that. And we were planning to launch Pioneer pretty soon. So it seemed like this was a pretty good time to try something like this. And uh, it was so much fun. We got to just design crazy, crazy cards. It was and fun. Mix and match mechanics on the same card. And 
we didn't do as many of the old legendary characters as I wanted because we needed to save a lot of that for Commander Legends, which is still uh, upcoming. But uh, so that's the reason why there's only a few new legends in uh, Modern Horizons. But uh, it's really just a a Melvin's dream this this set, and uh, I really like that about it. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I obviously designed original Time Spiral, and that was a blast to do as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, it's. Um, do you remember the code name? Oh, um, what was the code name? Decadent. Decadent, right? Decadent. <laughs> I wanted, I wanted the the um, booster packs to look like a uh, like a fancy uh, chocolate bar wrapper or something yeah. with just like you know tiny gold letters with the logo on like a velvet black background or whatever but we ended up doing something else we we kind of tacked heavily into the the modern legality as far as the marketing of the set so um but yeah it we got to just be totally self-indulgent there which as a game designer we rarely have the luxury of doing like ultimately we're trying to design these things for an audience that isn't us. Yes. And, uh, yeah. for modern horizons, we, we very much got to, uh, you know, make, make a set for ourselves. And that was really fun. Okay. Next up is Theros beyond death. Theros beyond death. Yep. So as the person who'd been on all three Theros design teams, uh, well, I guess you were on all three. I, I was also. on all three as well, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. Well, as a person who was on <laughs> all three Theros design teams, um, it uh yeah i i got the chance to go back to this world that uh i'd helped make years earlier and uh tried to figure out what what it's the best way We've, we we kind of struggle a little bit i think figuring out exactly how to return to different worlds like re- returning to returning to ravnica and returning to innistrad and returning to dominaria and returning to theros all kind of feel like they have different um, different challenges to solve. Yeah. And so figuring out what's the what's the essence of Theros and what's what's the new thing that we want to incorporate here. Uh, obviously, Theros is about Greek mythology, but I also think Theros is about enchantments. I think yeah. that we uh, we knew we needed both of those things, and. Um, and then as far as story-wise, we actually had a much clearer idea of what the story was going to be for Theros Beyond Death than we did for any of the other sets around it. Um, yeah, we, we knew. We're gonna, <laughs> Elspeth is going to escape from the Underworld. She died at the end of the story last time. She went to the Underworld, but that place leaks like a sieve. And we knew Elspeth was gonna was gonna bust out of there. It's gonna be jailbreak from the underworld. Uh, so I always thought of the, um, the 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 working title in my mind was Elspeth in Hell. We didn't obviously go for that, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So we tried a bunch of different enchantmenty mechanics, and ultimately, I decided that we just got it right the first time. Constellation was the right mechanic that interacted with enchantments in a way that made sense. And so we ended up keeping that. Uh, there was another, what were the other mechanics in that set? I know it just well, came devo- out. So the de- audience, devotion, but like, I mean, we brought devotion, back devotion. Right, right, right. We brought back constellation. We kept devotion also because that was, that was the sort of defining 
mechanic for the for the original block like that was that was engendered these crazy decks that you almost never saw like mono black control was back and and mono blue devotion like mono blue decks had not been a thing for many years and so the original theros brought brought the this devotion mechanic in that that the players really embraced uh and then the thing i tried that ultimately uh didn't work out for a variety of reasons was this river mechanic where you would put a cardboard river down the middle of the table and your creatures could either be on the the living side of the river or the dead side of the river this was you know repre- represented the river sticks um yeah that that went out of the underworld uh in greek mythology uh we tried that and early in uh in set design ultimately like too many problems piled up with it and uh they had to cut it so we got the escape mechanic instead i think did mark gottlieb design that one i think mark gottlieb made me i made the escape mechanic yeah so the uh yeah the river didn't work out we thought it was going to be awesome uh in digital and not so great in paper and then it turned out it was going to be not so great in digital and not so great in paper so uh it was it was a a valuable lesson in uh, making sure that there's lots of communication with like the user interface and user experience designers on the digital teams, just because like we had assumptions and it turned out those assumptions were pretty far off base. So uh, we, we, we like to think that we're, we're smart and can do everything, but actually, uh, <laughs> There are specialists who know how to how to design a user interface, and we ain't them. Yeah, one uh, of the things that is interesting about design is we're the first people to do stuff. So there's all these people downstream that have to make use of the stuff you're using. Uh, and a lot of, I guess, what you learn over time is getting better about communicating with those people to make sure that you understand what they want so that you're delivering something that each of those teams can use effectively. Yeah, and, and ultimately, I think that the, uh, the escape mechanic, while not quite as crazy and radical as the river was is a lot of fun and uh tells the story that we wanted to tell which was we're in the underworld and people are escaping from the underworld and we even got to make an elspeth planeswalker card with the escape mechanic on it so uh i feel like it all turned out in the end and like we kind of got the greatest hits of theros mechanics of which there were many Mm -hmm. uh from the original block because i think I think the the original set had like three mechanics, and then each of the additional sets added two mechanics. So like yeah, there yeah, were a lot of mechanics. by the end. Yeah, uh, and uh, so yeah, we we picked the best two and got the escape mechanic. And then as far as world building went, we got to do the world building for the the whole underworld, as well as um, the like the Minotaur cities and stuff. So we got to expand our our view of what uh, what's in Theros, and I imagine if we ever go back to Theros again, we'll we'll move the camera even farther back, and we'll see some more of that world. I do like that model where like the world is getting bigger and bigger yeah. as we uh, as we go back there. It's kind of what we did in Dominaria uh, when you think about it. Only I felt like that was in a sort of a more ad hoc sort of way. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously in returns we're always showing you more aspects and more things, and um, it's always a challenge. But anyway, I uh, we're, I'm almost to work, 
So, um, <laughs> so I, I, I want to point out that you, you've also done a lot of work on commander stuff, which will probably be a different podcast. Maybe at some point I'll have you back on and we'll talk about all the commander stuff you've done. Cause you've done, you've led a whole bunch of commander teams. Yeah, I'm tied for the most commander teams, tied with Glenn Jones, I believe. Yeah. Um, we've, so that, we've done a lot of commander. <laughs> so that'll be a, a different podcast. But um, so I want to thank for thank you for having you on. So any final final thoughts? Now, having now designed Magic for how many years have you been here now? A lot. <laughs> oh, like eight, I think. Yeah. Um, final thoughts. Uh, you know, go go for the uh, go for the opportunity when you see it. Because uh, great opportunities don't always come up, and I I hate to think about where I would be if I hadn't on a whim entered the great designer search. Because uh, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing, and I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to do it. Wow! Well, so don't let those pass you by, people. <laughs> well, it's been. I mean, obviously, I mean, you and I've worked closely together now for many, many years. So I'm, I'm glad you took the whim too. Um, but anyway, guys, uh, I've arrived at my desk, so um, we all know what that means. I mean, this is the end of my drive to work, so instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So thank you, Ethan, for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, guys, uh, and I will see all of you next time. Bye-bye.